mean, I feel like I've, uh, I heard about like War of the Worlds when it was a radio program and people thought, right? There was an actual War of right. the Worlds. So I the thought that one- was Orson Welles. I think Orson Welles d- did, did the broadcast, but the story was oh. written, by, written by H.G. Wells. Yeah. Wells, 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 I see. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, this is well really played. Expert, the- <laughs> <laughs> Wells, actually. Welcome to the Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. Slight warning, as sometimes this is a rewatch podcast. If you haven't seen all the episodes, you are in the wrong place. However, we do suggest that you go watch them all and come back and enjoy the connections with us from the beginning to the end and back. I am one of your hosts, Beep, and I am joined as always by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. And we have our returning guest, Aaron. Hello. Hi. Hi. I recently choked on water, so my voice is a little <laughs> weird right now. <laughs> I recently choked on water. <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's definitely true. Yay. Welcome back, Aaron. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. We do have one kind of announcement, kind of housekeeping, kind of frustration mm. we would Any like rant? to air rant. out. Yeah. A, a rant, rant. If, a rant, if we will. <laughs> um, and Terry did say this was uh, is was okay. So we actually did have the opportunity to read his pilots. And so now, in addition to being angry at sci-fi, which we always are, we are now <laughs> <laughs> true, true, extremely upset with both NBC and CBS. Although I would say that's probably normal, too. Yeah, I would say so. I was going to say, like, but, like, usually, I feel like, the thing is, I feel like NBC and CBS, like, I don't expect good decisions from them. You know what I mean? Yes. So, like, so it's rare that I'm disappointed in them because, like, basically I have no expectations ever. So for them to manage to disappoint is really quite something. That's right, right? (laughs) It's like, damn it, I didn't even give you a thought. Like, I was actually trying to think, when was... See if you guys, I'm actually interested in this answer. When was the last time you watched a drama on NBC and and then the second part of the question and on CBS? A drama. A drama? Oh, man. Yeah, because they manage some good comedy. So, not CBS, yeah. though, but NBC. NBC has good comedy sometimes. Um, CBS. I have no I, – I, I, honestly, probably in like – the late 90s when ER was still on right? NBC. I think it's ER. Oh, and I guess Law and Order, but like I never watched Law and Order on NBC. I only ever watched it on like syndication on like TNT or whatever. Mm. Right. Because it's watched- been on like literally forever. Yeah. Right. And we stopped watching Law. I think we stopped watching Law and Order in law school. I watched on CBS. I did watch Person of Interest. Oh, right. But I watched it on Netflix, so (laughs) that doesn't count. Right, yeah. You know what? And I I literally can't remember what was before that. I watched the only time I ever, I think that I've watched a drama on CBS that I can even recall is like when I'm home visiting my parents 
And because they're in their 60s, they watch a lot of uh-huh. CBS drama. Like, they watch all of the, like, procedural whatever things this on is, And this is the biggest fight I get into my par- with my parents about TV. So my parents are in their 60s. And they'll be like – We'll go to, like we'll go out to dinner, and they will be like, "What?" Because you, you, and like referring to my husband, like what? Like the world's ending? Are there zombies? Are there superheroes? Are there dragons? And we're we'll like, "Yes!" And that's why they're all awesome. <laughs> and, and then we're and then we're and then we're like to them, I'm like, "I'm sorry, does your show have an acronym? Like, is it SWAT, <laughs> FBI, CSI, NCIS? But what location is it? What location will they solve the mystery within 45 minutes? Which Will it be Miami? Will it be Los Angeles? Will it be New Orleans? (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Will they be able to read someone's mind? Can they see ghosts? Why do they solve the mystery within 45 minutes? That's really (laughs) exciting. Like, I don't know what city they're in. And it could have, like, and so, yeah, that'll be the biggest. That's like the generational, like, divide on TV. But anyway, that's like a really long way of saying, like, very politely, like, fuck NBC and fuck CBS. Yes, because we read Last American Vampire, which was our Liz Lemon, Dana Scully, like you couldn't even make up somebody that awesome in like a fever dream. And, and <laughs> it was, I mean, it was really, really, f- I mean, I don't like, I'm hoping that these two shows can maybe end up somewhere else. But it was everything that you would expect in terms of humor, but also moments that were emotional. I was like absolutely hooked after 60 pages and Apex, which is about serial killers. And I don't watch stuff about serial killers. I also was totally hooked. This whole like nurture versus nature, which kind of picks up some stuff actually from 12 Monkeys. Mm. Anyway, so I w- yeah, I was super into both of them, and I don't like I can't even explain. They they were both just incredible in very different ways, mm-hmm. and just like Aaron said, we never have any expectations for NBC or CBS to do anything right. But this was just like served up on a platter for them. So yeah, it's just like the stupid. fact that you intentionally then do something even more wrong just made me want to punch someone in the face. <laughs> That is a fair reaction, I feel like. Anyway, so we are really thankful that we got to read them and we continue to hate network TV. Hmm. That was that update. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, today we're talking about 204, Emergence. It's written by Richard Robbins, directed by David Grossman. This one's really fun to watch back to back with the last one. Yeah. Especially with like the editing and realizing what was going on that you didn't. It's almost like the first time that they play with that, and it makes you think about later episodes, like after, um, like in season four, where they're kind of playing with. You thought you watched something, and this was going on, but really something else was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but over two episodes instead. Yeah, point of view really is what yeah. they're tweaking. Yeah. Just like the, just thinking, sort of before we jump in to twenty forty four versus nineteen forty four, um, I was just thinking about sort of the episode title and big picture. This is the episode we've gotten some teases, but both with sort of the interaction with Mantis and with Jones drinking the red tea. This is both for the characters and the audience, like fundament, like what this show is fundamentally about is like emerges at by the end of this episode that this is not about just the plague anymore right like it's kind of funny it's like this is not just about saving seven billion lives this is about saving like the fabric of the universe (laughs) right like 
Um, and so by the end of this episode, we really like it's basically reset the stakes and made the stakes even grander than they were before, which is kind of crazy when you think about it was, you know, whether 7 billion people were going to die. Um, but I think it's also really there's a lot of discussion about forgiveness and like how difficult it is for human beings to let go of the past and let go of grudges. And I mean, they've definitely played with that before, but I feel like you have characters really talking about that out loud. And it's something that's a thread that runs all all the way through season two, but it runs all the way through the end of the show. Um whether it's like this season, whether you should save the primary or kill the witness or next season with Ethan or in season four, kill Olivia or try and find Jennifer. Um, and it just gets something really fundamental. Like it is really hard to let go of the past, right? There's something mm-hmm. like really relatable when you're seeing these characters argue about holding people accountable for the things they've done or whether or not that's productive and forgiveness. So we need to move on. There's just something really relatable about that because it's like one of the hardest things to do in real life. I agree with that. I think it's really um, – and there's a there's an interesting kind of, I think, layer there too that's about like – like one of, the, one of the difficult things about, you know, forgiveness and grudges and letting go of the past is that like, you know, forgiving and, and letting go of grudges isn't about erasing the past, you know. So there's this kind of like tension between – what the 12 monkeys want to do, which is to sort of like remove time altogether. And then there's this kind of other side of it where it's about like the sort of moment to moment choices about what parts of your past you are like, <clears throat> you're hanging on to and so- assigning like importance to and also assigning like pieces of your identity or other people's identities to, you know, because like, that, I think that's another thread that's kind of going through the, the conflict, um, the conflict among like particularly Cole and Cassie and Ramsey and Deacon. Cause there's that, you know, the stuff about the beginning between sort of like Deacon and Cole about like, you know, about like who did Deacon turn Cassie into? Um, and who did, who did Cole turn Cassie into, you know, like what, how are they responsible for who she is now? Or is she responsible? You know what I mean? Like, so these kind of questions of, and then like, um, you know, Cassie holding, Cole responsible for Ramsey being there, but then also like Ramsey responsible for kind of who she's become and who's Cole. Be- so there's a sort of like sense of where it's not just about forgiveness. Like the, the issue of like forgiveness and grudges and part of the reason that, you know, I think that that's so hard for everyone um, is because like, because the issue with the past is always so much like, like who you are is, is, built on what you've done and what you remember about yourself, you know, and what those things mean. And so like, there's a kind of like struggle among all of them to try to like decide like, okay. And then at the end sort of Cole having to say like, we need, we have to stop fighting about like what we did and who we were. And we have to decide right now that going forward, you know, like we have to decide we're going to be a team again. We basically have to decide that we are like affirmatively choosing to work together and not be these people with, you know, not like sort of define ourselves by these conflicts. Um, so, so like, I feel like emergence is sort of like, I don't know, I always think about birth, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, like with Mantis at the end, becoming a mother. And um, Tommy, I noticed this time too, now I, I could watch both episodes, the uh, 203 and 204 back to back this morning. And he says, like, when he's sort of like painting and babbling, one of the things he says is mother, mother's, Daughters become mothers, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like they're kind of like drop that in there as this little like, 
this little sort of hint to about Mantis, obviously, but then also about Hannah, who we see meet Jones in this episode, and then also um, Jennifer. But like, I think like, the, it's not an accident that that sort of theme of like motherhood and parenthood and like who you are being tied to where you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Mantis, too, you know, I think there's a there's another level there, like, what happens to Mantis? She has been so completely shaped, like her entire life. She's been told, like, the what you, everything that you've done, you know, is already set. It's already happened. You know, like your 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 future is already a past. And so, like her sort of emergence into a present and a future that she never planned for um, is kind of, I think, also hooked into those ideas uh, yeah. in like a really interesting way. Yeah, like I I looked up. I was trying to actually think so actually like when I looked up the definition of emergence it, this episode capture is sort of fills both meanings so the yeah. process process of coming into view or becoming exposed yeah so that's the army of the 12 monkeys greater plan mm-hmm. but also the process of coming into being and that's this sort of sem- like new team that's emerging for at least now all on the same side by the end of this episode, even if it is grudgingly, it's man- – right, as you said, that's a great point. Mantis, like, now she has to find almost – like, she has to find a new purpose mm-hmm. um, because she thought she was going to die that day. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it's interesting how they the, – all the different meanings of that are sort of – they play with them in different ways, like, throughout the whole episode. Well, there's also – I mean, I think um- – the story that, or that story, whatever, like the the uh, Red Forest Tea experience that uh, Jones has with Jennifer too is also about the emergence of time mm-hmm. and humanity, like and the sort of like way that those two things, sort of like co-emergence, like time emerged out of human consciousness and vice versa. They sort of constitute each other. So I think that's another form of emergence. So like. They, they, you know, and that, and that also kind of like fits both definitions of emergence, right? So on the one hand, Jones is like that, that understanding of time, that definition of time, or that sort of like that the nature of time is coming into view for Jones and that experience. But then also it's that, you know, that is about like this, the idea that time is something that is always in emergence. It's not eternal. It doesn't exist without you know minds thinking about it that it that time is something that emerges out of the existence of mind like human minds out there um particularly the primaries mm-hmm. sort of uh helping it exist so um yeah so that's yeah. another kind of emergence mm-hmm. so- i think also going back to the forgiveness aspect it's one of the first times like we've been um, well, sometimes arguing, <laughs> uh, going back and forth on everyone's point of view and, you know, reasoning for why they've done what they've done. And I think that that part of what's starting to occur here is everybody's having to hold up a little bit of a mirror to themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and say, okay, I had my reasons, but guess what? Like, they had their reasons too. And even if we can't agree on what those were, we do have to move forward to be able to, you know, accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And 
I think, too, that they're starting to realize how they're interconnected. I mean, that was said recently, you know, by Jennifer, like, James Cole remembers something you have all forgotten, that your, you know, fates are intertwined. And they're starting to see, well, like, because you did this, I did that, and because Mm -hmm. that person did that. And, like, they're just not able to sit around and blame as much, Mm -hmm. I don't think, by, by now. I mean, there was, I think, earlier on some some high horses that maybe some people could sit on. (laughs) The horses have been shot because they broke Ah, poor horses. Yeah, poor horses. (laughs) The horses have been shot. They broke the horses. What happens when a racehorse breaks their leg? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, it is, I mean, and you can keep that analogy going. Like, you know, like, they were riding the horses too hard and the horse b- broke their legs. Like Cassie broke a horse's leg and then, you know, whatever, Ramsey came along and shot it. So now she's mad at Ramsey, but Ramsey's like, you're the one who broke the leg. I don't know if that actually, whatever. It doesn't matter if or not. It's delightful. It, it, it worked for me. I totally know Excellent. what you were saying. Excellent. <laughs> she's just mad because she didn't get to shoot a horse. <laughs> Oh, man. Poor Cassie. Poor Cassie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so picking up, so picking up on just those themes, actually, let's take 2044 first. And I think that takes us right into how the episode opens with Ramsey standing before Jones and the other scientists, almost like... Like they look like like a war crimes tribute. Yeah, they do. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you're not in front of that many. Like you're not in front of that many judges. <laughs> generally, like so. Um, I think it's really interesting because in the last episode, wait, wait, Cece, it's literally a parole board. It is. Oh my yes. god, you're right. It totally right. is. Sorry, I didn't do criminal law, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> See, if you've been watching CBS. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. No. Okay. So when when Ramsey's standing in front of Jones, I think it's so, like, as folks will have heard by this point, I, like, went off on a really long rant um, about Jones and Deacon wanting to kill Ramsey in the last episode because I think it ultimately just came down to vengeance. Uh-huh. And so I find it really interesting that Ramsey's act of mercy, almost, in a, in sparing Deacon's life and, and bringing him back to the facility when Deacon had just been making him dig his own grave um, – <laughs> is what seems to I mean obviously there is a utility here like she needs somebody who can time travel Ramsey has is able to do that and she knows that the one thing that she has in common with him is that they both care about Cole and so she can at least trust that um but I think it's interesting that what seems to move the needle for Jones in cutting this deal for Ramsey and offering him his freedom if he will help her is because he spared Deacon when that was something that she wasn't willing to do like in the last episode. So I think I I, I just like it's if we were talking about sort of a cycle of people blaming each other, there's another cycle here that Ramsey sparing Deacon is then that act enables Jones to get over herself <clears throat> enough to at least offer Ramsey a deal that would be his freedom instead of being executed. Um, so and we all know how long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Deacon. Uh, Deacon. Um, I, well, it also, I mean, if you think about 
Because like the, this episode also has a really interesting arc for Jones, too, where it sort of begins with her trapped in her own kind of loop of stubbornness and and anger and, like, myopia. And it is kind of about her emergence out of that, you know? And I think maybe this this sort of, like, shift from her very, you know, her, like, really, her sort of rage at Ramsey earlier. And I think you're right. Like, she she's... You know, her wanting him gone is more vengeance than pragmatism. Um, so this shift does is maybe like kind of like the beginning of Jones's uh, kind of being able to break out of this little loop that makes her unable to actually like she can't contend with the problem at hand because she's still too focused on things that have happened in the past. And this is the first step in her breaking out of that. And then the second step is her stopping, you know, like not worrying about like, well, Einstein didn't say anything about time like that. And like being like, okay, fine. Like, <laughs> let's look at something new. Let's like, let's think, let's, let's get out of that old kind of loop of like, here's what, here's what people have said is true and think about things that might new things that might possibly be true. So, right. Cause yeah. those were theoretical and right. at least in the sense of the show, like this is happening regardless of if anyone right. thought of it or right. not. Exactly. Like it doesn't matter what Einstein would say it's happening. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what Ramsey did. Like he's here right now and you need him. So like, it's time to kind of put that behind you and just um, move forward. So, yeah. And- and amid all of that, we are, and I don't think we, do we ever get an explanation for it? They just randomly throw in there that Ramsey has one nut. Yeah. <laughs> Where? <laughs> You're in the middle of like these high stakes, like time, like the fabric of time is being ripped apart. We, we've lost Cassie and Cole's tethers. We need your help. We'll spare you. You can leave with your son, but we also are given the information that he has one testicle and we'll never know why, right? Like, well, I would it's be about levity and that's a lighter moment. <laughs> <laughs> if that was, if that was an ad lib, that is the greatest ad lib of all time. I know. <laughs> why don't we just electrocute my one? <laughs> Tired around my one nut. <laughs> that was pretty good, Aaron. Um, <laughs> it's because I choked on water. My voice is a little raspy, so I can do a good Ramsey right now. <laughs> um, you know, so but I love sort of you know these lines that are un, like I don't know whether they are intentional or not. But when you before he splinters to 1944 and and he says to Jones, "I can only fix one of your mistakes," like. At, at one time. at a time. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there and you're like, dude, this whole thing, like all of it has to do with Jones, right? Yeah. Like all of it. And um, Ramsey is the only one who doesn't forget that. Like he's the only, everyone else is kind of like worried about the details. I mean, he is the person who keeps saying like, this happened because you made this machine because you wanted your daughter back. And like that, that ultimately like that winds up being true. Like the whole thing started, Cole exists. Because she built that machine. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ramsey funded it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're that's closer than true. That's true. We just have the loops and loops of couple. Yep. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna end up like the characters at the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> just like yelling at each other, but this and that and that. That's your fault. <laughs> no so, straight lines. Yeah. So what I love about Jones in this episode is before she gets to that moment where she's gonna break on through to the other side. <laughs> She is at, you know, Jones has always thus far in the show been 
I guess she was losing it a little bit at the end of season one, but she is fucking losing her shit in this episode, <laughs> right? She is at a total loss and everyone it's like when you're the leader and everyone is coming to you for the answer and you realize how bad things are but you don't know why and she i mean it it starts when she's talking to whitley in the woods and she's like i i don't i don't know what's happening this just you know these bodies have been aged like a hundred years there's no scientific theory that can explain this um to her temper tantrum when she screams at adler and you're like oh my god (laughs) poor adler (laughs) <laughs> of all the people in the show, it like hurts me. Right, I know. Screamed at. I'm like, um, but she's like having a freaking temper tantrum. She's like ripping stuff off the evidence board, right? You know, like what Eklund says later, like stop being such an asshole. Like she's totally losing it, which I think is another sign of like the stakes of what's going on. That if somebody as brilliant and thinks they have it all figured out as Jones is losing it, mm-hmm. like things are really bad. <laughs> like not just bodies being aged a hundred years by pockets of time. Like watching her kind of crumbling in this episode and losing it is a little like disorienting, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's usually in such command of herself. Um, but there's so many new variables that have been thrown into the mix. And I also think part of of Jones's issue here is that she's out of information that used to put her a leg up on anybody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 She knew certain things were going to happen, you know, and she never told anyone. And now she's like, oh, shit, I'm flying blind. Mm -hmm. And And not only am I flying blind, here's a thing that's never happened in the history of mankind. Right. Yeah. That that defies. And also being someone who being such, you know, a like consummate and and in her bones scientist you know for something to be happening that defies like as she says every known theory she not only like didn't expect this stuff to happen but she has no paradigm to understand it and for i think for katrina jones like not having not being able to like comprehend something is like the scariest and most frustrating and worst thing that could ever happen to her (laughs) right and being told that the answer is not like empirical evidence, but yeah. to drink some crazy tea and have a vision and <laughs> right. trust that that's going to explain it. Right. Like, what? Like, right. Of all the people to be like, no, like, that's ridiculous. It would be her. Like, and also, honestly. like, I, this is, and this is one of those things that like, I love about this show because just because it's like so baked into everything, but it's so like beautiful. Like, the, the answer that she gets is basically like a relationship. There is, there is a relationship between human beings and time. And, and that like everything that you know is based on the relationship between these two entities, which are more or less like personified. Um, and like for, and Jones, of course, is just sort of like, that's not science, you know, like that can't be empirically proven. And Jennifer's like, it doesn't, you know, like empirical proof doesn't matter. It's about relationships. Like ultimately it's about relationships. Right. And it's interesting because she also, I don't think it's – it's not meant, um, I don't think, like in a religious way. But when Jennifer tells her – and we're about to jump into her first conversation with Jennifer. But I think it goes more to like what you're saying. When she's asking Jones to take something on faith, mm-hmm. which is leaping into the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no And not just formula. the unknown, but the unknowable. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you think about like the ultimate leap of faith that Jones is going to take at the end of this series. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. by saving, by tweaking this formula, like taking something that is like a a calculation 
but taking a risk that not only does she like she can't know for certain that her grandson will be saved she doesn't know for certain that it won't fuck everything up all over again right <laughs> but you put this woman of science at the end of the series taking like maybe one of the greatest leaps of faith of all in the series um, it's just really interesting to watch. Like, I think that journey starts here. In service of a it's relationship. It's interesting that this this yes, links back, though, to, to Jones more from the beginning of the series, or at least during season one, because she has gone, you know, so far into the science and the evidence. And I'm not saying this is about religion either, but if you remember when she was talking to Whitley at a certain point during season one, she said that one day they were going to be judged, you know, for what they'd done. And she, and he said, you know, I thought you don't believe in God. And she said, I don't think God's judgment requires my belief. Mm, yeah. Which in this sense is like now, you know, like, oh, I don't want to believe this or this isn't a real thing. Well, guess what? It doesn't really matter whether you believe it yeah. or not. Time doesn't care if you believe in it, you know, as right. like an entity. It did that that has no effect on whether or not it's real. Because ultimately, I mean, that's a really interesting way to put it because what her experience in this episode is – not not believing in this kind of more i don't know if mystical's the right word but it's not provable by sci- any science that she knows right. about what time is right and this is the first episode where we see we've had characters like maybe in in like a one-off line here or there talk about time as not quite a character, but like, you know, sitting in judgment of them, whatever. But this is the first episode where we we watch time. Like, it's the first one where we see the blinking eye. Um, mm-hmm. This, the way that Jennifer is talking about it. And so it is almost like faith in, <clears throat> we're not talking about God, but we are talking about time, almost the way that people do talk about religious faith. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. this ed- this greater entity that is, in some people may know, may have like, you know, th- when you're talking about the primaries, a greater understanding than maybe your average human being. But ultimately, it is unknowable and there are no clear answers and you don't know, like Jones doesn't know what happens at the end of the series, right? Yeah, and, and the, con- the confusion is only magnified by the fact that she thought she was dealing with a very certain set of rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now those are going out the window for like, you know, what her scientific version was. And now it's like, no, that's not even what time is. And she's like, uh, now what? <laughs> yeah. It's like this interesting exploration of faith versus reason. But the faith is in time as like, almost like instead of a, like a god. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, in that it's kind of like super – I'm struggling to like find the right word. Um, supernatural is not the right word. But like – But okay, but like faith in something that you – that the person who's asking you to have faith cannot offer proof for. Right. And I think like – actually, when you think about it, that's like a pretty strong theme through a lot of the episode because like, for instance, like uh, Gail um, doesn't really – like he, he has no proof. He doesn't actually – know that like Cole and Cassie aren't just messing with him but he does he winds up choosing to have faith in Cole um right. and and believe he, actually- he I mean he winds up having some proof but like but even but before he does 
he takes a leap of faith. He takes a leap of faith to believe him. Um, And like, even if you think about the, the sort of like the, at the very, very end of the episode where, you know, Cole tells him to stop arguing they need to form like the thing that they have to do. You could, you could also think about that as a leap of faith. They don't actually know, like they don't trust each other. They don't actually know that the other people are, aren't going to make decisions they don't want them to make or have ulterior motives, but they have to, they have to decide to take a leap, have faith in each other. Um, and Jones takes a leap of faith to send Ramsey back, you know, like and her faith is in Ramsey's relationship with Cole, which is like, I mean, she's seen it, but she also knows that Ramsey tried to kill Cole. You know what I mean? Like, like she's taking, she, there's, there's a leap of faith there. And then Ramsey asks Cassie to take a leap of faith with Cole. I mean, so there's, there's a lot of faith going on. In this episode, yeah. actually. Yeah. Yeah, because they've, I mean, they've run out of track. Yeah, <laughs> when right. When it comes to, like, what's been calculated. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they're all, and then in a weird way, you can, like, you could sort of see, like, the conflict is coming from their attempts to keep calculating. Yes. And, and so, like, the only solution is you have to stop calculating and just trust. Right. That, I think that takes us into Jennifer and old Jennifer and Jones. This, they're meeting for the first time here, right? I think so. Old Jennifer has only met Rancy face to face. I think at this point, um, I, I think that's right. Yeah, they saw her. They like she knows of her, and they saw her. You know, even in the in the woods at the beginning of this, but right? As far as but having like, an actual conversation, she's only spoken through a daughter. Right, right, right. Right. So when she arrives, you know, they, they keep, <laughs> like, like creepily watching her from the woods. Until she finally, <laughs> until she finally goes. Until she's finally like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, which is interesting because, you know, uh, what I am overcome with now watching old Jennifer is old Jennifer probably is like, I know how I can get Jones to come and talk to me. And it's <laughs> like, right? Like, sit in the woods. She can, she'll come to me because she's going to be so curious. Like, you know, yeah, she'll, yeah. I can get her to come to me. I don't have to go knocking on the door. Right. Just appear unsettling. Yeah. Yes. Just like here. make yourself a question that Jones can't answer. And then she will come to you and be like, all right, fine. I need the answer. <laughs> <laughs> So she, when Jones comes to the camp, that, I mean, it makes me like yell out loud that it is Hannah who is the one with her face wrapped up who nods to allow Jones to pass. And you're like, holy shit, you, you talk about things that you don't understand. Your daughter is right in front of you, mm-hmm. right? Like the whole reason why you're doing this, right? She's standing right there. Um, and then you have the tortoise, um, which the tiny one in two episodes, but the big grown-up tortoise. Um, Whose name is Terry. Terry right? tortoise. <laughs> um, and then you have, like, poor – I really feel for old Jennifer that no one but the audience is appreciating her excellent pop culture references. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Jones may have been, like, studying time travel her whole life, but obviously she isn't consuming, you know, mass entertainment on time culture – I mean, on time travel because she doesn't get her, like, excellent uh, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. And she's so excited to say it. And then she's just kind of like, okay, you don't get it. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it really – we did a little bit with Ramsey, but watching Gen- old Jennifer in this scene, I was struck by, like, on rewatch, like, the initial time you're watching it, old Jennifer really does, you're always 
So when you first watch it, the audience is in the position of whatever character is talking to old Jennifer, right? What she says is as much a riddle to us as it is to Jones or to Cole or to anybody that she's talking to when she's in 2044, right? Mm -hmm. On rewatch, we now know as the audience everything old Jennifer knows. And so the scenes, while the first time I watched them, I was like, for example, take this scene with Jennifer and Jones. I was as confounded as Jones is. But now when you watch it, my heart, is like with old Jennifer when she like the fact that Jones is there and is so kind of like dismissive of her and you're like oh my god this woman raised your daughter <laughs> right <laughs> or or um when Cole comes up and Jennifer's face like lights up and is like oh otter eyes like you're like god because now I know what that relationship that friendship means to her mm-hmm. right like and that she hasn't she spent 30 so odd years, right? With all of these memories of people that she hasn't seen. And now Jones is in front of her talking about Cole, right? Like, so it's just really, um, I mean, I always, I always appreciated old Jennifer, but you just really get her now on Mm -hmm. rewatch in a way that you didn't maybe the first time around. Um, so she explains a lot of, Basically taking the way Jones is thinking about things and uses a lot of different ways, like cause and effect, chicken and egg, which is, you know, also you're like, oh, you are chicken and egg. You're chicken, Jennifer. <laughs> uh, I know. Um, end and beginning saying this is not so simple and there's no straight lines, whereas Jones is like so focused and trying to approach it as a scientist. Um and they're basically just like, Jones is not ready to listen to what Jennifer has to say. Um, but we do get a really, um, I like really appreciate when shows, even if the reasons are crazy, but like within the world of the show, we get an explanation for why the red tea has the properties and effects on the human mind that it does, mm-hmm. right? Because it is the result of a paradox, um, so those red leaves, even even a scientist like Jones is like, can at least appreciate that they're going to, because they are produced by this crazy paradox effect, that they're going to have an impact on your mind. And, you know, it's interesting because obviously that tea not only has visions that like connect people, but, you know, later in the season is going to enable Cole to travel through time, like travel through his memories. Mm -hmm. So I love that they're giving us like a within the world explanation for something that we've been watching people drink since season one and wondering like, what the heck is this all about? Why does this tea do this? And they give us an answer in this episode. Yeah, because originally it seemed like it was only kind of a, almost a method of torture from the 12 monkeys to other people, and yet something they drank for their own faith, but it definitely seemed to be rooted in them. Yeah. Right. right. I mean, we, and actually, it's it's actually great that we, Erin, the first episode where we watched the Red Tea Visions, the Red Forest, you were on that pod. That's right. Yeah. The where they force fed it to Cassie. Right. And so we were talking a lot about, you know, it's co-opted memories um, and, and like a hallucinogenic like visions. Mm-hmm. And now this explanation and when we think forward to what Cole will be able to do or or even in season four with Jennifer and like communicating with Olivia, like as the witness, like it is almost a form of time travel itself, right? And so yeah. it makes me 
Like when Cassie was in front of that house in Cedar of Pine in her mind, now it makes you wonder like, what was it going on there, right? Because these le- the, this tea has a has properties that are produced by a paradox. So we have the uh, like adorable scene between Eklund and Jones, <laughs> and I you, could not love him more. Can I, I know, say me that? too. I could not like, love when he love when he him. when he asked her why are you being such an asshole. That was the moment I was like, okay, I love you, and I now I understand why Jones loved you too. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> he's know, just it, like the perfect not foil for her like i don't know what the, he just compliments but it almost her like, so yeah well. yeah exactly like he like, sees he sees her you know in a way that like she normally tries to make sure people don't and it's just like so touching but like he's just like i love like he's confronting her but it's like with so much love Mm-hmm. Right, like mm-hmm. there's such affection. Yeah. In, why are you being such an asshole? Yeah, <laughs> it takes, exactly. It takes a special person to pull that off. And yeah, like, like lovingly while they're saying it. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I think it's um, I find it fascinating. I'm trying to think of different words because I realize that I use interesting like every 45 seconds on this podcast. So <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> that um, that. Even though Jones doesn't know, it's almost kind of, it's interesting. It's almost like another, oh, fuck, I use interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like a chicken and egg thing with Jones and Eklund because Eklund knows her intimately, loves her, and has spent like not only like physically intimate, but, but as we will find out from this scene, knows what makes her tick, has been taught fundamental lessons like he has been taught by her, right? And now he's turning it back around, almost kind of like the Cole's and Gen- the Cole and Jennifer loop of mentoring, right? Mm-hmm. Like old Jennifer tells Cole something in the future, and then he uses that to mentor young Jennifer. Mm-hmm. So here, Eklund is using this advice, but there's something really the fact that Jones is still drawn to him and lets her guard down with him even though she has no memory of their relationship. Like, is it because maybe it's like, it can be both things at the same time. Because of their previous intimacy that she doesn't remember, he is more open with her. But there also must just be something about him intrinsically that no matter the timeline she's drawn to, right? I mean, he's there in her room, which we usually see Jones alone in her room. Unless, like, Ramsey, like, inserted himself when he was going through her stuff, right? So even the fact that he's there, like, in her inner sanctum, even though they're not, like, in a romantic relationship, I think – I just think that that is fascinating that, like, this is a new timeline and there's a do-over and Jones is still drawn to him. He's got pretty great shirts. Maybe it's the shirts. (laughs) It also just seems like that he can go toe-to-toe with her in a way that other people can't. Yeah, He's not just bitching, like he's not Cole, you know, or Ramsey just like fighting with her. He's a scientist and you have to assume he understands at least some of what's going on. And there's just very few people, especially like you said, with the love that he exudes that will just call Jones on her bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like she's not, you know, like we've said for a while that Jones knows that she's been lying or knows that her real motivations, you know, just happen to line up with the good thing. And she tries to play that card. But, I mean, I just feel like he knows the core of who she is. And I think part of the reason she would be drawn to him is because she didn't reveal that to him the first time either. He just saw her. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, I love how he frames her current difficulty when she said, I'm trying to solve the problem. And he says, no, you're trying to be right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that is maybe what, again, like what kind of like draws her to him and makes him so different, you know, is, is because everyone else kind of like will just grant, like everyone else she'll sort of like, she'll like sort of set the, the, the precedence for the argument and people try to like argue with her on that basis. And he's always just sort of like, uh, uh, no, no, that's, you know, like, you're trying to sort of control the dialogue on this level, I'm going to go one level deeper, you know, and I think that like, that like, she's clearly like startled by that. She's not expecting it, you know, like, and I think maybe that's what draws her to him that he's that she like, she can't predict him, you know, which is like unsettling, but also intriguing and interesting. And and like, I love Adler, but like Adler would never push her in that way. You know, like right. Adler would never argue with her well i think a lot of people expect her to be right yeah exactly you know they look to her like and part of that is because of the way she's just like commanded that room and Mm -hmm. done whatever but like they all just look to her we know even you know in the last episode they were all going off on their ideas and she's just sitting there with a cigarette giving no input because they know she's gonna have the final word exactly but i think what's interesting about this is he calls her out in her attempt to be right, but in doing so, he actually gives her the freedom to be wrong and to yeah. just start spitballing and come mm-hmm. up with ideas. Yeah. And yeah. so she has that, like, not safety net, but literally just like a freedom. It's like, hey, let's just try to figure out something else because in this space right now with me in front of me, you don't have to be right. So let's look at it a different way. He relieves the pressure. You know, it's like just like right. that intense, incredible pressure that everything depends on her and what decisions she makes. And yeah, so I think it is like an incredible relief and a freedom for somebody to be like, no, I think you're wrong, but you know, that's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. it's cool. Because he doesn't expect anything <laughs> yeah, from yeah, her yeah. for her just to be Joan. Yeah. And everyone's, and everyone, and all everyone's been doing from Ramsey to Whitley to Adler is, is looking to her for answers mm-hmm. when she doesn't have any. And then if it doesn't work, is- she gets yelled at, you know, like yeah. Ramsey yeah, comes right. back and is, and will just like, give her the rundown of every mistake that she's made, you know? And so to have someone be like, that's okay. Like, so that would, that didn't work. So now what are we, what you going to do next? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, the writing is, I thought the writing was beautiful and, you know, there's so many different characters talking about time in different ways. But when he says time is cruel because you don't know me, but I know you. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just like heartbreaking. It is, and it's such a. I mean, is it an interesting preview for the timeline reset for Cassie and Cole in the finale? Oh yeah, you know? yeah, right. So he's sitting there, and you think about like all the memories he must have, and he's sitting here talking to someone who, you know, he's kind of like a stranger to her. Yeah, I mean, it's just so. But I, the way he describes who she is. That she's an explorer, an explorer goes full on ahead into the unknown. I'm like, oh, it's just like you want to fist pump at that like description <laughs> of Jones, right? And I also just love watching like a man just lifting up a woman in that way, right? Mm-hmm. Like which men on this show do a lot, but um, it's just such, you know, when he's basically like in his crazy shirt, so he's basically like, you know, go. I, I don't think, he, I don't know if he knows what they're talking about in terms of the red tea, but I love that like the old dude who is blasting rock music and is like, go be an explorer. He's basically like, yeah, go do the drugs. <laughs> 
also kind of like, um, I think that maybe does go back to what people was saying about the freedom and the, and the sort of lifting of a sense of responsibility. Cause like earlier on, you know, what she said when Jennifer was like, I got answers. I got this tea. She was like, I don't have time. You know, like she was thinking like, I have to solve this problem. I don't have time to mess around. And so she did need someone to say like, no, like the, what you, the thing you got to do is let go. You got to go do the weird, fu- you know, ridiculous, like the thing that you, that can't possibly rationally solve this problem, you know? So she did need that kind of like that permission, that reminder, you know, like. Yeah. Cause this is not the problem we would normally face. Right. So we can't do what we would normally do. Yes, exactly. Like when you're faced with a problem that has no precedent in established science, don't try to solve it with established science. <laughs> right. Do drugs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, I mean, it's a starting point. Like, give it <laughs> Just kidding. Kids at home, don't do drugs. Um, <laughs> also, don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> That's yeah, true. true. Not appropriate. <laughs> um, okay, so that um, Jones returns to Jennifer and she drinks the red tea. And, you know, on first viewing, this whole sequence is, like, so trippy. And Yeah. Oh, yeah. First time I watched it, I was like, I have no idea what the fuck just happened. Like, I don't know what any of that <laughs> You're like, do I, hear pr- do I hear primates? <laughs> what the fuck's happening here? What? Like, um, and so at the time, though, I mean – Okay, so I think it's I think it's really important, but for two reasons. So the first one, the first one was at this point in season two, this was a really detailed explanation for the audience about what primaries are, mm-hmm. right? So they are and the relationship between man and time. And so you have sort of Jennifer appearing in the original jacket that we saw her in. Um when she first met Cole in the hospital and she will she will do this again in season four right appearing to Jones when Jones is kind of in Glocka, right yes She's, yes yes to get her out of like her head essentially mm-hmm. yeah so okay so she explains that what like what Aaron was saying before that the dawn of humanity um is also the dawn of time and she says time and man grew up together and Jones counters that with sort of a scientific response of that's, you know, basically that's ridiculous because the universe is infinite. Time is older than man. Um, And so it kind of gets through this, like, of course the universe existed before man, but the passage of time and the consciousness to recognize that time is passing, that came with our, like, mankind's consciousness. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of approaching it from two different like looking at it through two different lenses. And then they, the important parts are explaining primaries are like living, breathing gears in time's wristwatch and no past, present or future and infinite now, life and death together, unborn, destroyed, a memory of tomorrow. So this is like a big, this sequence gives us a lot of information. So it's explaining to us We've got some hints in the last two episodes from Jennifer and from Tommy Crawford, but that what the primaries are and why it's so why it's such a big deal to paradox them that basically they're like, how does Jones put it at the end of the episode? Um, crucial points in a structure, and you start destroying them, and then the whole structure is going to come down. But also, a lot of 
the explanation we get now that like the entire final question of the show about whether or not they're in the red forest or the decision that Cassie had to make. This is, this is, I think Alicia said in the last two podcasts ago that this is the most face value explanation we of the audience get of what the red forest does to living things, mm-hmm. right? Like you have the imagery of the fox, um, both living and then decomposing and the same with the flower. Um, and it's basically described like as like a hell on earth. And yeah, this is all, I mean, I've said this 8 million times, so I won't go into it, but this yeah. has always been my sticking point with the red forest. This well, I, scene, this understanding, this explanation right here. Right. And I think, I don't, I think that you can accept that the Red Forest exists and also that it means the end of all living things as we know it, right? Because basically it's as if the Red Forest is like where your consciousness goes to live as some sort of afterlife and you're not a living creature anymore. Well, if you can't, like, if there is no before or after, there's no time, then there is no death. And in order, by definition, in order to be alive, you have to be able to die. Like, that's why viruses aren't alive. But they exist. They exist. They're not alive and they can't die. They have to be denatured. But, mm-hmm. like, so, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they also seem to indicate, though, like, you know, I'll see you in the Red Forest, that, like, everyone that's dead is going to come back, too. And just, like, logistically, none of that makes sense to me. <laughs> right. What, wait, wait, but wait. There's- what does it make sense? <laughs> the idea, because they, like, everybody they kill, they're like, it's okay, we'll see you in the Red Forest. Like, right. where are those people coming from? Well, the idea if it's just taking over your consciousness, then like those people's consciousness. I don't think it's just conscious. I don't think it's just consciousness, though. I think oh, I don't either. I think but- it's that everything that has ever and will ever exist exists simultaneously. Exactly, which is chaos. Correct. So yes. Uh, so anti. Uh, th- so we are anti red forest. <laughs> Absolutely, one hundred percent. So there's a lot of imagery that will we the next time we will see it will be when Jennifer is explaining to Cole what Jones did and why time is okay with it. So we have the blinking eye. I think the um you know when you the image of the stars but it's like time lapsed so stars look like like streaks yeah. across the sky. I think that's in the finale. Um there's a lot of like tr- like traditional images we associate with time in hourglass, gears of a clock. We see the house of cedar and pine, we see the witness mask. Um there's just you know, it's like being bombarded with all of these images that have such significance for like the mythology of the show. Mm-hmm. And we're just, like, bombarded. It's like you could watch that sequence, like, five times and pick up on something new each time. Um, Here's a question. Yeah. If they were – if they're saying, you know, time needs man and we grew up together and all that stuff, then, like, what would man be without time? Can you separate them? I don't think so. Just, like, theoretically. I don't – I mean I, – No, I, I think – but I, th- I, 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 I think the, the point is that one emerges from the other. Right. Humanity itself, to be human, um, requires, is sort of like predicated on time and vice versa. Yeah. Which, if you're going to play devil's advocate. Oh, I'm not, though. No, no, but I am. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm just. (laughs) Um, If you're going to play devil's advocate, what Mantis is saying at the end of this episode is that 
time constrains humanity and we need to unlock the infinite. So, of course, time, of course, when time talking through a primary, Jennifer, is explaining what the Red Forest is, of course, time is going to characterize that as a negative thing because it means the end of time, right? Right. So, I don't know, like, it's not necessarily, like, I don't know. It's not necessarily face value because that's time's explanation of what the Red Forest is because time will cease to exist. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just like the 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 what we understand as being human mm-hmm. will end. Will end because that because what we understand as being human is uh, exists in time. Time is necessary to it. So whatever comes after is like like categorically different for both time and humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know who else grew up together? Cole and Ramsey. I was going to say Bert and Ernie, but... <laughs> no, but Cole and Ramsey. Like, yeah. I don't know, just something about, like, time and man grew up together. I was thinking about, like, like Cole and Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Who, who, like, need each other and also then try to destroy each other. <laughs> mm. A whole yeah, bunch of times. Yeah, they seem to have a problem being separated. And the pallid man and Olivia. Yes. You're right. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's kind of like a Cain and Abel over yeah, and over yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the one thing, um, I, I, it seems a little bit out of order, but I think it does kind of, when talking about sort of these series-long questions about the Red Forest, when Jones is describing what the Red Forest is based on, on this experience of the visions at the end of the episode – this is totally accidental, but it's awesome now. She explains it, and she's like, you know, it's a temporal hell on Earth. And then the camera immediately cuts to Cassie. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> I don't think that that was foreshadowing then, but it sure it is sure foreshadowing, foreshadowing now. <laughs> she's absorbing that information, so she turns off the damn countdown. <laughs> <laughs> but I do like, like – one thing that I like about the Red Forest – sort of concept is that I think it ultimately like whether it's a temporal hell on earth or heaven on earth, you know, it's like, it's all, it's subjective. It's based on like, like for one person, it might be hell and for another person, it might seem like heaven, you know, it's just like, it's, it just is. And whether it's good or bad, I think is very, is like a matter of perspective. Yeah. I think you can say, and, and I mean, I feel like, I'm always end up arguing devils, like I'm always playing devil's advocate, but I'm just doing. That's it for because like- you're scared. You are literally <laughs> no! scared. I was gonna say it's because she's a lawyer. Might be right. <laughs> no. I, yeah, I think it's because I'm a lawyer, and I think <laughs> as she's trying to anticipate the opponent, her opponent's uh, arguments, <laughs> so that she can refute them. <laughs> no, it's even so. The reason why I keep coming back to it is because even though I do think, just to be clear. I do think Cassie stopped the countdown. I do think the ending is real. It's not I that I believe it, you. I, no, it's not that I'm scared. I think that they presented a really interesting question and debate, and I just want to do justice to it. And I think that you can acknowledge all living things on Earth would die and still have a viewpoint that if the Red Forest is an afterlife, that's still a good thing. Because I think, like, as Sean Tretta pointed out on the podcast where we interviewed him, that is the basis of a lot of religious faiths, right? Like, you're dead, 
but you're in an afterlife and that's portrayed as paradise. So what there are, you know, like now you make that choice for a lot of other people. It means that no one ever existed. Yes, there's a lot of downside. (laughs) So, but I'm just saying like, I think that you can acknowledge even that this vision that Jones has is what it will actually look like on earth and still say, but we get to be immortal. So cool. Yeah. I'll pick that. I mean, I'd like to take that one step further. Everything on earth is going to die anyway, like by definition. <laughs> they're right, just, so just hurry it up. They're kind of, I mean, like it's not even hurrying it up. It's kind of just like removing that from the equation. It's like, I mean, you're all going to be obliterated. So this way you're not obliterated. Now you just always were and always are. Right. Cause you get, you get time's perspective on what this is, but we also get Mantis articulating that it is unlocking the infinite. Yeah, exactly. And she views that as a good thing. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There is a, there is a, that, that debate is going on even in an episode as early as in season two. Okay. So that takes us to 1944. Um, the, I love how, I love the idea of the editing constantly telling us when we are in, in, instead of like where we are. Like we know that Ramsey's in 1944, but the editing by telling, letting us know where, when Ramsey is in the course of these two days by always cutting back and forth to where Cassie and Cole were in the mission from the episode before. Um, it's just like such an interesting concept, right? That the show has been playing with like, when, where are you? When are you? Um, that it's always letting us, like anchoring us, like this is the part of the day that Ramsey's in. Mm-hmm. Um, it also makes my brain hurt when uh, we talked a lot, the last episode about sort of free will and Tommy Crawford and Mantis both thinking that the, the the events of this day have to happen and that they have to die and that they like neither of them view that like as having any freedom to make a different choice. But here we have Jones sending Ramsey into the past to prevent something from happening to Cassie and Cole. But now we know from the telephone call in the lobby, he was there all along. And all of these other factors, like getting hit by a car, <laughs> getting put under anesthesia or like being knocked out, right, with the syringe in his arm, all these other factors prevented him from doing what he was trying to do. And no matter what anybody did, that paradox happened. It makes my brain hurt. <laughs> Am I like articulating that? And well, like it's like a whole loop that no matter what anybody does, they can't change the end result. But he was already there. We just didn't know it. Yeah. Which makes me wonder, like, did Tommy know that? Like, is that what he meant? You know, like this is going to happen or but I guess no, because he he like did things. He like interfered to make sure that it would happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's just kind of crappy luck, though. I mean, Ramsey <laughs> might have been able to prevent it if That's he wasn't true. in no. the hospital. Yeah, if he hadn't been hit by that car, whoever the fuck that was, I want to know, who was driving that car? <laughs> Ooh, that would have actually been interesting if it was somebody who was like, knew he was coming back and tried to prevent it. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, lo- I love that there are, like, we watched this day happening, the last episode for Ramsey in 2044. And then, and then he's reliving. I don't even know if I'm framing this the right way, but at least like as a viewer, we watched, 
while Cassie and Cole were doing all of the stuff in the last episode of 1944, Ramsey almost died because he was almost executed, right? <laughs> and then in this episode, he's hit by a car and they're basically like, dude, you should be dead if you didn't have something funky going on with your body, right? <laughs> and then he is unconscious in 100 years, wakes up and Deacon says, morning sunshine, right? And then like knocks him out again. And then in this episode, he wakes up in the hospital and the nurse says, morning sunshine. Oh my God. Yeah, you're right. Right? So there's there's like these funny little groundhog day aspects to his day like no matter which which if he's in 2044 or 100 years before he's gonna almost die and he's gonna wake up from being unconscious and someone's gonna say morning sunshine it's just gonna be under very different circumstances (laughs) (laughs) um so the i thought this the song that's playing like you know they kind of give us this whole sequence of letting us know why Ramsey didn't get there in time um the song that's playing is actually from the 1940s it's by a I guess really important songwriter, but who actually didn't have a lot of his work out there, like being like currently that was currently available. His name's Connie Conway. Um, so I think it's interesting that like it's a song from the 1940s, but it wasn't re-released until 2012. Huh. Um, yeah, yeah. But the song is I Should Not Be Seeing You. Ah, yes. <laughs> so Yikes. there's some, yeah, there's this, there's some great lyrics in there that you can dig into. Like, we know that it can never be you and I together. But I think even the title of the song is great, considering Ramsey's role in the day of Agent Gale watching them disappear, like at the well, end of the Well, and also Mantis, like, sort of saying over and over now to Ramsey what she had said to Cole and Cassie the episode before, like, you shouldn't, you're not supposed to be here. Like, you, you yeah. shouldn't be here. This is not going as planned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's. <laughs> yeah. And she's ca- even more rattled with Ramsey. Yeah. She's like, uh, your cycle's over. Yeah. And he's like, okay, but here I am. So <laughs> now what? Yeah. So let's, let's jump into that because that, that conversation is so, there's so many different layers to it. So you've got that mantis, you shouldn't be here. And does Ramsey actually by mistake, tip Mantis off at this point that Cassie and Cole are there? Um, when he says... I don't know. Well, she already knew uh, that. No, she though. already knew, yeah. Because the guy was looking for them and he's like, comes in and is like, they're on the second floor. Yeah, like, yeah. She already knew. Oh, I think they already right. knew. I'm, okay. It's just, I'm trying to like piece together how this unfolds at the mental hospital. Um, it's, it's great that like Jones was saying at the beginning of the episode to... Um, Dr. Eklund, that she doesn't trust Ramsey. And here we watch him use his former allegiance to the 12 monkeys and try and use it to his advantage to pull one over on Mantis, mm-hmm. right? And acting like he's still, yeah, he's still there. They're still on the same side. And he's using things that are true. There were messengers that were killed, right? So only six of them made it. Uh, Cassie and Cole did use the time machine to go back and pursue them. And he's using those things that are true and trying – he almost gets away with it, right? Until he uses that, the witness asked. And that's what tips her off <laughs> because the witness never asks for anything. Um, but their conversation and the way Mantis is like on the verge of tears when she says, the love for your son is long and storied. Um, a child is something I cannot have. And then thinking about 
her journey and importance in this show. Like, man, there's, you know, we've talked a lot. There are so many mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. And Mantis is one of those, you know, she's not going to die in that day. She's going to end up having, being the mother of both the Pallid Man and of Olivia. Um, It is crazy. Maybe we would have been better off if she couldn't have children. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I I found that like moving, right? Like there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting portraits of different members of the Army of the 12 Monkeys and their faith, right? And the fact that she grabs on to Ramsey's story and the love for his son and that was something that she found so moving. And then you think to the journey that she will have that we'll see in season four, where the first time in her life that she will ever question her faith in the witness is when the witness is asking her daughter to give her own child up and sacrifice it. And she stands in front of like, she steps in front of a bullet for her daughter. I I just think that like, it's just a really telling, it tells you a lot about even this person that's like been raised to think that her only purpose in the world, it's clearly something that she's like yearning for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's also insane when she's talking about the witness and the witness is her fucking daughter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what else? That's how she knows. She's like, the witness doesn't ask. Like, trust me, she never shuts up. <laughs> <laughs> um. I think, you know, I don't think I like fully appreciate it until this second episode. I went after and actually watched her scenes in um, 45 RPM where we get the flashbacks of Olivia in 1971. Oh, yeah. And was just trying to kind of like refresh my memory on sort of like Mantis's journey. And it's just like Mantis and Cassie meet in 1944. Then they're going to be in the same place in, in, in – so – she knows Cassie's importance. She's yearning for a child. The next time they're going to be in the same place is in the 1950s when Mantis has Cassie's child. Yeah. She's there in the tent. And then the next time they're going to be the same place is 1971 when Cassie's there to avenge her child and Mantis is there to protect hers. And they're so, it's just kind of like, they're kind of like locked in their own cycle of mothers and their children and trying to protect their children. And it's just kind of like now when she's talking about having children and having her like Mantis and Cassie in the same place and thinking about in the future when they're going to be in the same place and thinking about sort of like their own cycle. It's um, it's also interesting then, like given all of that, that, you know, it's a whole plot of the last two episodes is that, you know, she killed the father when she was supposed to have killed the son. Um, and that she has to go back and kill the son. So that there's this kind of like parental, you know, like the mix up is this parental relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. The next scene is, um, kind of, it's kind of tricky going back and forth, but if we just want to maybe close the loop on the mantis portion of the story, Mm -hmm. and then we can jump into sort of the Cole, Agent Gale, Cassie Ramsey part of 1944. Mm -hmm. When they go in to talk to her, she, talks about that she's at a total loss because she survived. Um, She says, father made us so well. And what's crazy is we know now she's referring to Kirshner. Mm -hmm. And Agent Gale is going to be the one that gets Cole 
to East Berlin <laughs> to figure out, along with Cassie and Ramsey, where Olivia is kept. And then that confrontation, it, it will be Mantis that retrieves Olivia, right? Mm-hmm. So they're also And Mantis locked. is also, like, made from Olivia, so there's that. Wasn't Gail, right. wasn't Gail also in the 50s? Yes. Yes. With uh, yeah. Mantis and Ethan? So like yes, so like Gail's cycle is all a, is all like looped into Mantis, mm-hmm. like consistently, right. yeah, forties, fifty, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when when she says, kind of with this, um, she does say something like, "I never thought I could stay in 1944, have a life and a child," and she looks. And Cole is standing right there. You're like, oh, my God, that's going to be Cole in 1958 and 59. Mm-hmm. Never expecting to, like, stay and carve out a life for yourself in this period of time, like, where you shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, she, like, pulls one over on them, beats the crap out of both of them, <laughs> and says, I cannot kill James Cole. The witness has spoken. So it's, like, one of those kind of chosen one moments that leaves you like, what the fuck is going on? Um, The final scene, just to kind of close Mantis's story in this episode, I have a question and I'm curious like if you guys or if you guys have an answer or maybe we need like someone to tell us the answer. So at the end of this episode, we see Mantis dying in 1971 and the young version of the pallid man at her deathbed. In season four – 45 RPM, when Cassie goes back to kill Olivia and Mantis steps in front, steps between Cassie and takes the bullet for Olivia, that is also in 1971. So I guess my question is, and the, and the whole point of that scene, right, is that they're stuck in a loop and Olivia didn't remember what happened that day, right? But no matter what Cassie does, she can't change the loop. So was there a time shift and Mantis died for a different reason in 1971? Or is this scene that we're watching at the end of Emergence her dying from that bullet wound that was from Cassie? I don't think we know. That might be mm-hmm. something that, yeah, that the that Terry would have to confirm or... I just kind of got the impression that she was, like, older and sick, though. Yeah, she just looks old and sick. Although, even then, I was sort of like, I was like, all right, well, she was, like, in her 20s. Maybe when they sent her back and then she's been there for like less than 30 years. So she's not actually that, like she's maybe 50 or 60. Right. She's not actually that old. <laughs> so she, she, because in 45 RPM, so it's the same year, it's 1971. So it's either she dies in 1971 for one reason or another. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, when she's shot by Cassie, she falls on the ground and you, either either she's dead right there or she's just like unconscious and then she's later dying from that bullet wound. But um, I actually don't – I don't – so you guys – all right. So I, 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 you guys are also confused by that. Okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> so, I, I do not know. I mean, I think that the, the – uh, don't we have another time shift by then or something? And we don't know a lot about – the messengers because none of them ever survived past that point of being 28. So I know that they were kind of made from Olivia, but maybe they start to degrade faster or maybe because they traveled that happened or, you know what I mean? Like there's all kinds of things we don't know yeah, about right. their makeup. Maybe I, mean, I know Olivia, maybe actually, the like, 12 monkeys and- were anti-vaxxers and she contracted <laughs> measles. <laughs> That's actually like a legit point. (laughs) (laughs) Because they wouldn't have needed to prepare them for it. They were going to die anyway. Yeah. (laughs) 
I love how whenever we have Aaron on, we're just really worried about vaccinations. <laughs> That's true. James Cole and tetanus, or is Mantis dying from measles? Look, I just want everyone to get their damn shots, all right? Amen. Get your shots. Okay. Well, I I think it's fun to think. I think it's fun to think. I don't think it's fun that people are getting measles. I think it's Get fun. your damn shots. <laughs> I I get off my lawn. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Until we hear otherwise a definitive answer otherwise, I think it's fun to headcanon that this scene at the end of this episode where Mantis is dying in 1971 and the pallid man is at her deathbed is she's dying from Cassie's bullet wound. Yeah. And we just won't know that until season four. Is her is her name like on the witnesses sheet? Like does it, is her death recorded on the the? I don't know. I don't. Thing? Not that we see. Okay. I don't think. Like it may be there. Because the only other thing I could think of is like she, you know, she's like she knows she's gonna go die, yeah. and that's her like not like actually dying in that bed, but like saying goodbye to her son. I I, yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> so I mean, they, she also doesn't even have a name. So <laughs> well, she does actually an IMDb, and I was. Uh, it starts with a V. I can't remember if it was. I forget, but I was surprised by it, and I I thought that she went by Mantis, but I don't know if that was like a writer's room name for her. Where, did, where like, does the name Mantis come from? It's the creepy way she cranes her neck, like <laughs> oh yeah, she's stalking. Yeah. You guys, I almost I was like trying, I was gonna, I'm gonna search for her on IMDb, and I almost typed in the title as Twelve Witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> final scene i mean first of all it's a big on first watch like holy shit she's the mother of the paladin yeah yeah right yeah um and that's what the earlier conversation with ramsey saying i cannot have a child and then it turns out wow she did and we know him really well and he's really fucking creepy even when he's a kid wearing the same hat <laughs> like a very young man um but i guess maybe that gives us like he's just still wearing kind of He's just really – he's not going to let that fashion trend go. He's just always been a weirdo. He's just always been a weirdo. Um, so she it, – it gives us – you know, her bed has the flower petals. She's ha- holding the flower petals in her hand at the moment of her death. So it's giving – you know, it ends with the pallid man having those petals in his hand and letting them go in the same way. So it's kind of like – Answering that question of, of where did the pallid man come up with his weird ritual? I thought the music was gorgeous in this scene. Yeah. Um, and she says that it's kind of interesting because before she dies in 45 RPM, she was actually questioning her faith. And I wondered if like watching her Olivia like be p- – like teenage Olivia be um, possessed by the witness actually like reaffirmed her faith before she died Mm. because she is telling her son to have faith and to make things right, which is what the pallid man said in the night room Mm. when he saw Olivia's corpse, (laughs) his sister's corpse. Um, So I I feel like there must have been a time, there must be another time shift that happens. Like she always dies in 1971, but it's not the same death. I don't know. Yeah, we'll put that question out there. But, um, like, because I also don't know where, who the pal, like, was the pallid, I guess she just later had a relationship with Shaw because she's not the wife that Shaw remembers growing up with that he's striving for the Red Forest for. So, was the pallid man? Oh, well, I think she's the second wife. 
And she actually is married to him? I mean, I don't, I'm maybe not married, but she's like, I think, I always thought later on, like, the implication was that he was in a relationship with her. Yeah. Because, I like, just never, yeah. I never know who's grown from a test tube and who wasn't. <laughs> yeah, that's um, <laughs> By the way, um, her character's name is actually Vivian Rutledge, according to IMDb. There you go. Vivian Rutledge. Got Vivian it. Rutledge. It's a beautiful scene. It's also really sinister. And we've talked before about this whole question of like nature and nurture and parents and children. So it's just, I love that those same, even though we don't get to spend as much time in the world of the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, even early on, before we get to episodes like Daughters in season four, this scene is like such an interesting like nurture dilemma Mm -hmm. in how we approach the pallid man, right? Because we realize what he has been shaped by. Like, this woman is his mother. We saw her kind of religious fervor, and that is what that is who raised the pallid man. So it's like this moment of understanding that character who has been such a, like, big bad, right? And so sinister. But here he is, a young man at his mother's deathbed, and is living out her dying wish, which is to have faith and make things right. Um, and it's really, <coughs> on, on the one hand, like, relatable, and on the other hand, it's so sinister. <laughs> like, yeah, right? yeah. It's like 300% more creepy than either one of his parents put together. Oh, yeah, so, for sure. I mean, because I think well, yeah, a Olivia, whole other thing I, going Olivia on. Olivia and Mantis both have crises of faith. Uh, but I also think, like, for him, my, like, my reading on The Pallid Man has always been, like, Especially given what he does to Olivia later in this season, that for the pallid man, it's always been more about power than about faith. Like what he's really interested in is becoming the leader of this cult. You know, like, like the faith yeah. part is, is an avenue to power for him. Um, rather right, than. Right, because they never see the witness. It's not like the witness is leading things like in the day to day that falls yeah. to Olivia. So yeah. he wants to be the, the right hand man. Right. Exactly. And when he goes to the, when he goes to the witness and asks to be, you know, to like take over for Olivia, it's not that he doesn't believe in the witness. It's just like his, his sort of devotion to the witness is not like, because he's so personally devoted to that mission. I think it's more because this is the way to have like, supreme power in that world and like whereas for so then like the crisis of faith is faith is never a question for him because it was never like he can he can he can adjust his faith as necessary like it is necessary for him to have faith to retain that position of power but because it's like the fun the faith isn't really like the fundamental part he's i think a little bit more able to kind of like all right well i guess now we're going to do this thing instead whereas for olivia it's like those changes actually produce a crisis because she had really and genuinely put her faith in the witness being this particular thing and being sort of like infallible. So then when that's not true, it's not just like, all right, well, then we'll just like, here's how we'll deal with it. It's like, well, then everything I believe is false, you know? And he just kind of rolls with it. Yeah, he just rolls with it because it's because it was never about that for him. But I think so. I think that I think there's absolutely... I mean, unquestionably, there is a power struggle between the two of them, right? But I think it also does stem from his faith. Because when they are – it's almost like like thinking about, you know, like early religion being confronted with, like, scientific discoveries, right? That, like, make you question your previously held assumptions. And he is the type – 
of per- he is the type of like religious follower that like doubles down on the dogma. And so Olivia, yeah, no, I'm just, like, I'm not Olivia's saying, he, ki- I'm not saying he doesn't like, I'm not saying he is a cynic. I'm not saying that he doesn't believe what he claims to believe. I just mean that like, yeah, that he he can adjust his beliefs to accord with whatever he needs to because like it's really like the hegemony of that system of faith that's important, not the content mm-hmm. of the faith itself. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. So, so like whatever he has to like do to like maintain this structure in which he wants to be on top, he will do. Whereas for Olivia, like the actual content of you know, the the witness's claims is really paramount. And so she can't just kind of like, so that's, I, I mean, I think that's why like, he he like, despite manifold things happening that would challenge his faith, he never has a crisis of faith because he's just sort of like, all right, well, the edifice must stand. So how do we like shore up the edifice? Right. Like the, in two episodes, she's like, but it's chaos. It's not the cycle. And he's like, no, it's a new, beautiful chaos. Exactly. Like he will the always. The forest is chaos. Right. Yeah. He will, he will always be able to like, he will always be able to like rationalize because like keeping that, like keep, like, like explaining why this is always right is most important to him, I guess. Which I guess you're right. It's like a different kind of like absolute faith. But yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like the. You know, the type of faith that, like, doubles down and is like, nope. uh, Well, it's interesting. Like, if you're – I was trying to come up with, like, a comparison to, like, discovering that the world isn't flat. (laughs) And, like (laughs) – Well, I don't think it's not the – it's not the flat that that was, like, the big – like, I mean, for, like, Catholicism or, or, you know, or for whatever. It was was that the Earth wasn't at the center of the universe, which was, like – like, you know, and that was important because it was, like – the entire cosmology of meaning of being human was built around this idea that we are at the center of everything. And if that's not true, like if we're actually going around something else, then like, what do we do? So I guess, yeah. So, so, so he would be like all those people who like came up with like increasingly bizarre and esoteric and ridiculous mathematical systems to explain evidence in order to keep the earth at the center of the universe, because the alternative was just like, well, we can't change our fundamental assumption that we are the most important. (laughs) But it's actually interesting is that when it comes to the religious debate, which you can make your head hurt and be like, because Olivia is the winner. Right. (laughs) But when it comes, when it comes between their debate, Olivia, Olivia is drawing the conclusion that because things aren't going according to plan, then that makes the plan somehow like unattainable or undermines her faith in it. Uh The pallid man is actually right that these little changes don't matter when it comes down to their overall goal. Yeah. Like achieving their overall goal. He's actually right. Right, right, right. Yeah. From their perspective. Yeah. Right. And she's getting she's getting caught up in any divergence from it, like shakes her belief in in all of it. And he's like, you know what? Like blip here, blip here. It doesn't mean we can't still achieve the red forest. He's right. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean she's also going to talk directly to the witness, getting answers and like their wrong answers. I think that does play into a little bit too. She has direct contact and the information she's getting isn't good. Or she doesn't understand it. Well, I mean, when I say it's not good, I mean like it doesn't pan out. Like if he's saying like this is the plan, you know, and like that doesn't work. But I mean, I think or that when you have the word and you look at that and it's like this person dies. I think that just like, like tells don't. you like there's there is like a they have fundamentally fundamentally different kinds of faith because hers sure. is based on this like 
the the sort of everything about this is based on the idea that the witness is like knows all of it and is infallible. And that's why like all these little sort of like things that turn out not to be true kind of erode that. And then, and then for her, it's like, if the witness isn't all knowing and infallible, if he can't actually see the complete cycle and tell you what's going to happen, then, then everything around it crumbles. Whereas the pallid man's faith is based on like, again, it's like, it's almost like faith as a will to power, right? Like, the point of like his faith isn't based on the infallibility of the witness. His faith is based on the witness has this plan that is going to bring about this particular event. Um, right. and like whatever has to happen, whatever happens to, to hit that goal to like for them to transform the world in their image. That's all he cares about. But it's a very different, like the nature of those two different kinds of faith is very different. And if mm-hmm. time can be destroyed, there's no reason to assume that it's static. So some yeah. of these things could change. Right, right. Yeah. And Olivia also, I mean, the pallid man lost his father, like had a, neither of them have had sort of a great, they've all had traumatic things happen to them, right? Like the pallid man lost his father right in front of him, right? He's shot by bringing it back to Agent Gale. Um, but Olivia was like raised in a box, was told to have a child and then to immediately give it up, right? These are all, we don't know about any of this about Olivia, but now when you take her whole story into account and all of like the kind of life she's led and what this cult has asked of her, you can understand why she has a more like extreme reaction to then things going Yeah, up. I mean, like basically her entire life she's spent um, the primary way of coping with the sort of traumatic and painful things that she's been forced to go through is by being told, um, it's all part of a necessary plan and it all makes sense. You know, like these things have to happen. If they don't happen, then this won't happen. And therefore, like, you just have to accept it. You have to accept on faith that this pain right now is necessary to get to the good thing later. And so, like, you can see how the revelation later on that that wasn't as, like, set in stone as she had led, been led to believe was sort of like a bait and switch that becomes really painful, you know, where it's sort of like, you told me I had to do this terrible thing or experience this terrible thing in order for this stuff, this whole world to come about. And now there's actually a question about it. So then like, you just were like, doing this shit to me without any without, a, you know what I mean? Like, it makes right. sense. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, and I know like, but it all comes back to it's crazy yeah. that both their existence all goes back. But I mean, of course, Mantis and Olivia are in their own circle like of chicken and egg. But yeah. this episode of Mantis talking about and yearning for children and yeah. who those children turn out to be, you know, like we won't we won't see her again <laughs> until 1950. So <laughs> she's kind of like this important figure and how what role did she play in shaping like our two antagonists? Yeah. She's their mother. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, so that brings us to the Gale casserole and then to the extent Ramsey's in it portion of 1944. So if we can bring it back to Gale questioning Cassie and Cole, um, it kind it's just fun to think about that he has Cassie and Cole tied up and is questioning them. And then at the end of the season in Fatherland, he and Cole are going to be rescuing Ramsey and Cassie for being tied up (laughs) (laughs) and being questioned by Mossad. Um, I love this sort of like the truth to when Gail tries to sit down and talk to Cassie and play good cop. 
the way he kind of touches on this raw nerve of you got tangled up with the wrong guy and he has put you in a real situation here <laughs> <laughs> is kind of like a, a summary of the argument that they just had <laughs> in the yeah. last episode, right? Um and also, it's kind of like this aha moment when he pulls out the photograph. So it was Agent Gale who got the copy of the 1944 photograph from the photographer at the military event. Um, and so it's our first clue that maybe Gale has something to do with why they're all there in the first place. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's the photograph he's going to be writing in. Um, it's There's just like a lot of like fun comedy of like, honey, no, I'm honey, she's baby cakes, Um Cole calling him Shirley um, before he knocks him out to get back at him. When they, um, Ramsey and Cole and Cassie get to the hotel lobby, it's just like, you know, Ramsey comes in and saves them, but then like they are quickly engulfed with the same old like rivalries and grudges and like different worldviews on what they should be doing. And it's like the arguing immediately gets picked back up mm-hmm. um, with Cassie being like, oh, so now you want to save people. Um, I think it's interesting. Ramsey doesn't come clean on the deal that he's made with Jones. Um, when she says, why are you doing this? And he's basically like, oh, just out of the goodness of my heart. Like, and she's like, well, what's in it for you? And he won't tell them like not even Cole mm-hmm. that he's been, that he can basically walk away. Um, and I think it's an interesting character moment for Cole when he's like, so you guys just want to give up? Because he's just been reminded of the family motto in the last episode with Tommy Crawford um, about um, never giving up. I think the next big moment is Cassie and Ramsey at the bar. And this picks up sort of that theme we were talking about, about forgiveness um, there's a lot of, uh, is irony the right word? Um, when you think about that, they will later be sitting at that bar and betray Cole and fatherland. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of talk in this conversation about Cole's loyalty, that he's loyal to a fault, um, that he will forgive that, like he would, he forgave Ramsey, he would forgive Cassie. And it's all actually True, when you think about Fatherland. He, his loyalty does blind him to Cassie and Ramsey, like, drugging his drink, and that they're not actually on the same page with their mission. And he does forgive both of them pretty quickly. I mean, within, like, an episode, right? Um, for that betrayal. But, I mean, I'm just, like, Ramsey is, like, a, he's just a really good friend, I think, in this scene. Because he's, and he's recognizing that he is... The one of the main causes of this divide between someone that he knows his friend really cares about and like he's that he's the person that's come between them. And that goes all the way back to like the season one finale. And he's trying to make like he's trying to move the needle and make that right to the extent that he can. Um, and when he says like for it, it tells us a lot of things, right? He's like, don't hate, you know, you can he hates himself for what he turned, he beats himself up for what he turned you into and you wouldn't, and you want to hate him for it. And Cassie's like, you can tell that there's like emotion behind there. She's like, I don't hate him. Um, It gives us like a lot of information sort of about their headspace, but also like the forgive him like he did me, like he would for you. It's just, I find that scene really moving and thinking about sort of the cycle that those three people are constantly going to go through with their 
shifting allegiances. Mm-hmm. Did you guys have thoughts like watching that scene? I think like one of Cole's great strengths is that um, he always is just kind of like able to meet people where they are, you know, um, like he doesn't he doesn't really need people to be perfect or 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 to prove themselves to him almost. I mean, it happens again with a little bit with Gail, where he just kind of like he has this ability to kind of look at a person and assess them and, and sort of go with his gut or make a leap of faith in trusting them that turns out to be accurate. And like a little bit with the same thing with Jennifer, you know, where he kind of like, like learns very quickly to kind of like see past some of the things that like Cassie really struggles to see past for a long time to kind of like recognize um, what's in a person's heart and not just, you know, kind of what they, what the situation that they're in has, has sort of forced them to do. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just, like, the end of this episode, I always wind up thinking a lot about, like, it's, like, one of those episodes that makes me kind of go, like, this is why James Cole is so special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know. And they, I mean, they encapsulated. I mean, I think it's interesting. It's the second conversation of two people who are at odds, right? So at the beginning of the episode, it's Jones and Ramsey. They could not be more at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. But the thing that, the thing that gets them on the same page is Cole. Mm-hmm. And then you've got Cassie and Ramsey sitting at the bar. I think it's really sweet that Ramsey knows what Cassie drinks. Yeah. He, or- he orders her whiskey. And, he- and the reason why he knows that is probably because Cole has told stories about her to, to Ramsey. Um, and that's what ties them together. Like, it also is the source of conflict between them, as we'll see later in the episode. But, you know, Cole is kind of like the nexus of like what brings all these people. All of these people care about Cole. Um, like whether it's Jones, whether it's Ramsey, whether it's Cassie. And so he is both the source of conflict between them. And he's also what is the reason why these two people can even have this conversation at the bar, right? Mm -hmm. It's because they both care about him and he's reaching out to her because he's just been, he was observing in the last episode how torn up his friend is by this, like, you know, the current status of their like whatever their relationship is it's not great right now and he knows that it's his fault um i think the kicker is also you've got ramsey talking about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness but then at the end of this season ramsey and cassie are going to be like on the side of vengeance because of what happened to sam and cole's going to be the one saying that can't be our mission so it's just like an interesting stop along the way of this kind of continuing conversation about revenge and forgiveness that this episode and like the whole series has. Um, did you guys have beef? Did you have anything about that scene? I think that the interesting part here that Ramsey is calling, not necessarily calling out, but that we see in Cassie, like she hasn't been ready to, uh, you know, approach any of this until this point. Um, and she still isn't, I don't think, but in her saying that she doesn't hate him, that's actually the crux of the problem. Yeah. If she just could hate him, then it would be super simple. Yeah, right. It'd be easy if she could just be like, well, fuck you, you know? (laughs) But she can't because she loves him. (laughs) (laughs) She's indignant, but not indifferent. uh, Right, right. She's having a moment. (laughs) A long moment. She almost is like mad. I don't, 
I don't hate him. Yeah, exactly. I just fucking hate him. <laughs> also, and also, she also seems like feels a little offended to me. Like, I don't hate him. Like, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> You're right. so wrong. Why can? How can you be so wrong? <laughs> I think you know. I think this conversation though does move the needle a little bit because. At the beginning of the next episode, when Cole, like, embodies the water, when Cole's like, you know, if you get into trouble in 2016, you can, you know, I'll have your back. And Cassie's like, okay, right? Like, there is something about this being back in the mission together. But I think also this conversation with Ramsey that, you know, things are not reconciled between them by any means. Mm -hmm. But they're at least – she's at least able to – She's not seething with anger <laughs> the way she has been, right, since the beginning of the season. So there's yeah, something that happens. Yeah, and I think that that's because this – and I do agree that it happens here. I think that Ramsey exposes her. Because you know, we always talk about motives and reasoning, and so far she's been like, you're not, you're not on mission. You're not on mission. But she's really – what she really means is like, you freaking hurt me. Mm-hmm. And I'm just not ready to say that. So you're not on mission. <laughs> like, Which is funny because like – especially in this episode – um, like he is the most on mission. He's the only one who stays on the mission. Who's like, no, we haven't finished this mission. Like we gotta like, right? Like, they're men still a drink out there. The bar. Yeah, he's like, let's go. <laughs> let let's keep pursuing this. And they're like, no, whatever. Like we are like we're t- like she's too in her feelings to even like see the mission. Um, it's just like this very handy excuse to be like. <laughs> I don't have feelings. You have feelings. Go away. <laughs> well, I love it too because it's it is even though it's this like crazy sci-fi show, it's so relatable in that so many of these conversations happen over a drink. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like as they do in real life, right? Like, um, but yeah, they're they're like enjoying a cold beer and a whiskey, and Cole's the one who's like picking up the newspaper and figuring out where Mantis is, right? And like <laughs> chasing her down. So, um, I and you know we talked about uh, like at the beginning about how Cole takes this leap of faith with Gail when they do come face to face in the hospital, and Gail lays out how he's put together both with the necklace and Ramsey's health um, and he references H.G. Wells um, which the fact that he's reading H.G. Wells in science fiction I think tells us that there is more to Agent Gale than just the like straight laced G-man oh yeah no I mean I think yeah yeah like he he is I don't know like I mean again like I think the reason why he's sort of he latches on to Cole and he starts like he's a He's a guy who, like, wants to believe in this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, he wants the world to be bigger and stranger and more interesting than it is, you know? So, like, and I think that's what, I think that's what Cole senses. Like, why he can be trusted. Because he has an open mind. Yeah. And, like, as you were pointing out, like, Cole's talent for... I mean, I think maybe like just essentially it is connecting with people and you, as you put it, like meeting them where they are, whether it's with Jennifer or this moment where he takes this leap of faith with Agent Gale and it's an unbelievably important relationship. <laughs> like for the, fe- like for many missions for ultimately saving Cole's life, mm-hmm. right? In season four when he's poisoned. So, you know, it's kind of like, Going back to what the daughter said in the last episode, like our fates are intertwined. Things go better when people trust each other yeah. and make human connections. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> Which is why Cole keeps trying to tell everyone this entire season, especially Cassie, and she just does not listen. <laughs> She's like, no, kill, kill. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, despite, you know, Ramsey is all about, like, you know, forgiveness now, right. but whether it's killing the witness or killing Cassie, Ramsey's going to be on back on team kill oh, yeah. very soon. Yes. Right? And so- Beacon even before that. Right. <laughs> right. So, right. He's like, okay, so let's talk about forgiveness, but then I'm going to turn around and let's kill a whole bunch of other people who aren't alive. <laughs> um, so the lobby farewell scene is so – before we get to, like, that, like, de- the way it ends and it's, like, so delightful, um, when Gail says, I want to help, and Cole's like, maybe one day, you're like – Oh my God. <laughs> Should we just make a list of all the ways this guy's going to help them? <laughs> like for the, like this season and the next two seasons. Um, but I love how they just take a minute to have some fun with like remembering that like, Time travel is awesome. <laughs> like people disappearing in front of you is fucking crazy. And you audience, you may have gotten used to this, but like put yourself back in the shoes, right? Like when Cass when they're like you're going to want to see this and Cassie saying, "Yeah, you won't forget it." It's because Cassie once was in Agent Gale's shoes in the pilot. Yeah. And had somebody disappear in front of her and then have to, like, live with that on her own and question her sanity for, like, right, the future. But it's just – it's so fun. And Jay Carnes is, like, so delightful with his, like, awestruck, like, holy shit. And I think other than the finale, this is the biggest smile we will see on James Cole's face. Yes. <laughs> like, for the entire series, right? Um, It's just a really, really fun scene. And I think those kinds of scenes are really important when you've got a show that is dealing with some really, really heavy shit a lot of the time. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. Like, you need those, you need those, like, moments of fun and levity and... You know, like you need the occasional strange things are afoot at the Circle K moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, something right. I, I never really thought about until um, now when you're connecting all the things that he, um, you know, helps them with. He kind of in his own way, like sacrifices more than a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, he just lives that way for like 20 something years. Oh, yeah. Like just waiting to help them the next time. And it time. fucked up his marriage. Yeah. Right. And his relationship yeah. with his kid. Yeah, like it is a, you know, it is the, we talked a lot during season one, you know, when Cassie was basically like the Cassandra, right? <laughs> and the burden. And Agent Gale is like another Cassandra. Uh-huh. Like everyone in the, here he is. He's like, in these two episodes, he, he is the agent that is on top of it. The other agent's kind of a dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> um, right? Like, you know, he sees the bigger picture. He's putting the clues together. He's the one that's on it. And he's going to end up being basically like a laughing stock of the FBI mm-hmm. because of this. Yeah. He's, and he this never is, gets anything out of helping them. This is the moment when he becomes Fox Mulder. <laughs> like tucked in a basement in the FBI. Oh my god, he is. <laughs> Everybody makes fun of him, call him spooky. <laughs> yeah, and his scully is like coal, but he only pops up every yeah, exactly. 15 to 20 yeah. years. <laughs> He's all alone. Oh, he is. He's like 1940s oh, Mulder. Yeah. I love that. He is. <laughs> <laughs> Only with time travel instead of aliens. <laughs> right. 
Um, and then, like, just to close the Gale loop, we have that, like, it's so great when he's walking through 607 and he leaves that photograph and he right there he decides, I can help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can help by writing that. And he doesn't even know that he, like, has to do that in order for this whole thing to have happened. Like, that's just... That's just Gail being Gail. <laughs> yep. He just has great instincts. I mean, it also, you know, it's one of those loops like Fatherland or like After that they created, they they unknowingly created the reason why they're there. Mm-hmm. But they do learn something <clears throat> important as a result. Yeah. Even if, even if the the mission that is this cycle is a failure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so um, they're not like, yeah. So it, it's one of those, Gail is always part of these like mini loops within a loop. <laughs> you know, and another and another loop that I think is interesting to kind of look at, um, the kind of comparison between like, think about like the Cassie that he first meets here in 1944, who's like very, you know, angry and rigid and like on a war path <laughs> um, versus the argument that Cassie and Cole have later about whether or not to warn Gail about his death. And Cassie was on the side of warning him, you know? So like the reason later on that, that Gail survives, you know, in 1961 is because it's of their son is because of their right? son. Well, I, and because like they have that argument, but it winds up going Cassie's way, you know? So like, I don't know. There's just something kind of like beautiful about that, that like in this version of, you know, in this kind of like loop, like Cassie is very, you know, is, is sort of like uninterested in him or sort of like checked out or whatever. And like, she's, this is a very different Cassie, but like eventually, um, you know, he'll die and then undie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because of that it's, debate. Also, it's also going to be a very different, which I think if I'm remembering correctly, Agent Gale is going to kind of like, clock that it is also a very different coal. Yes, yes, right? yes. So the coal he sees in the 1950s is a coal who's like reeling from just finding out that his son, he thinks his son's the witness yeah. and bringing up all of the horrible things that Cole deep down thinks about himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And whereas Cassie, right, is this like more hopeful, maybe we can change things, right? And Gail is part of that. Um, yeah, So, so he kind of gets like he keeps checking in on, like, Agent Gale gets, like, a really interesting snapshot of Cassie and Cole every time he sees them. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, every, you know, he gets, like, a decade in between, and then he sort of pops in and is like, wow, you've been through, through some more shit. <laughs> <laughs> you still haven't shaved, though. <laughs> um, I think that takes us to, I think we only have two scenes left. So the Situation Room debate. Which we've touched on a little bit. We've got Ramsey's great line to Jones, your mission caused all of this. Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it did. Correct. Um, so they're all arguing and the camera, like, and everyone's pointing fingers and ev- no one's saying anything that's actually wrong, right? Like, they all are right in their own way, but being really stubborn um, and not seeing the other point of view. And the camera keeps being back to Cole. And Cole is the person that has a connection to everyone in the room, like a personal connection to everyone in the room. And he's like the one person I think that can like see other people's perspectives a little bit because of those relationships. Mm -hmm. And he's just sitting there like almost head desking, like, please 
fucking stop arguing. Okay, do you want um, do you want a, like a, a more painful interpretation of what's of why Cole is the one who can see who can sort of like stay calm in this? Always, <laughs> but no. Yes and no. <laughs> do it. I do. I, it. Bring it. So for me, I think like at least a bit a big part of it is that the other reason why everyone else in that room is being stubborn is. They're all fighting against accepting their own culpability. Like they, they're all in a sort of de- defensive crouch. Um, and this goes back to, you know, Jones being worried about being right. I mean, Cassie is like, they're all sort of like very, very wrapped up in their own reasons and why their approach is right and why they had to do what they had to do. But, you know, other people, their choices, you know, just were wrong or bad or caused pain. And Cole is the only one in that room who accepts that he did terrible things and hurt other people and is not in a defensive crouch because he just is like, yes, I'm a piece of shit that ruined people's lives. So now I have to fix them. Mm. Uh. <laughs> That's a funny sound for me. Uh. <laughs> that just hurt. I told you. I told you. <laughs> right. Like he's never, you're right. Cause he's not defending himself. Yeah. Cause he, he it would not occur to him to defend. He's like, there's nothing to defend. Yes. Like what he says to Cassie, you don't think I know what I cost you. He wouldn't defend himself because he's like, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> and then, and then, and then what hurts, like what hurts is he's the one who's trying to, despite thinking that he's a piece of shit, take the more hopeful path. Yes. Right? Yes. Cause he wants to save everyone else. He's like, I accept that I am like damned or whatever. Like I, he's done what he's done. But like, but for him, it's like, so there's no, if there's no redemption for him, that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to save everybody else. And everyone else is worried about like their own, like the reason why they can't worry about saving everyone else is because they're too, again, they're in that defensive crouch. They're trying to figure out how to like, how to be okay with the things that they've done. And for right now, what that means is like trying to rationalize them, you know, rationalize why they were right instead of just accepting like, I did bad things or I did something wrong. How do I move forward? Yeah. yeah, and even up until this point, he truly thinks that the end point of the mission is his deletion. Absolutely, yeah. You know, well, even yeah. when the, even in two o two when the time shift happened, he's like, "Why am I still here?" Yeah. So like, he, like you said, he's working towards saving everybody else because he has no hope to begin with. Exactly. All he's searching for is like some sort of absolution. Absolution before he is wiped from exist having ever existed. Or he right. thinks he's going to go back to being like a, a nine-year-old kid. Yeah, exactly. Right. But either way, this Cole right now, he always, he's been sort of operating under the assumption that like this ends with him, like the way that he gets redemption is by erasing himself. Right. Um, Getting like a do-over to be an adult. Yeah. Like, this version of the adult is gone. Yes. And this version of the adult, yeah. the only way that he can ever redeem himself is by having never existed. Which also winds up being, in fact, the case. Like, factually true that he has to be erased and never have existed. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing for him to be stressed about if that's I mean, that's, that's why he can be so chill, right? He's like, I mean, yeah, it is a truth of the universe. I don't even exist. That I, I should not exist. Like, so, I mean, you know. I yeah. got this time. No one can say anything to me that, like, is worse than what I already know to be a fact about myself. No. <laughs> the power of depression. <laughs> oh, man. 
But Aaron, like, it's funny because you were saying how, like, the end of this episode reminds you, like, why he's, like, a special character. Yeah. It, remi- it reminds me of season four Cole. Yeah, like, yeah. You know? Yeah. Every time, like, this is a peek at that. Like, he has, like, these leadership abilities. He has this ability, whether it's taking his, like, family motto to heart, like, you don't give up, right? They are facing these insurmountable odds. Jones is like, but we don't know how to look for the primaries, right? Mm -hmm. And he's like, okay, we'll figure it out. We don't have the answers right now, but we'll figure it out. We always do, but we have to come together. Like, we didn't choose to be here, right? It's like that inspirational leadership speech that's like the season four James Cole. And we're getting like a peak of it now. He's going to go back through like his own spiral self-hatred in season three. Yeah. But But I think like the heart of it is like, I think a lot of that is just because he has this like, this like bottomless, unshakable faith in the people that he loves, you know, like as far as he's concerned, it's like those three people, like they are in their core good people who can do anything, you know, like Jones can solve any problem. Cassie is like always going to do what's right. You know what I mean? Like he just has this like total faith um, that I think like he reflects back to them then. And then his faith makes it seem, makes it possible for people to believe in themselves and in like hope again, which is especially amazing. Cause like he, like, again, because I think it comes from a place where he doesn't have that faith in himself or like any hope for his future. So, you know, right. But But he's also truly flawed because like in the next episode, he's like, Oh, we're going to kill Deacon. Sounds good. Yeah. No, no. I mean, this is not like he's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then like, and then, you know, he goes on this whole sort of like, well, gotta kill my kid, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So it's, but I mean, there is, yeah. But at his yeah, best, like, in I his mean, in his best moments, at his best, yeah. Right, he's a human being, yeah, of course. So, yeah. when he gets confronted with new, pro- you can you can think this is the best course and that is the best version of yourself. It doesn't mean that you're always going to follow it. Or yeah, you're not going to exactly. Up. You are not like by definition, you are not always your best version of yourself. Sometimes yeah. you're the worst. <laughs> But, you know, for these moments where, like, the music is swelling and you've got the camera on James Cole and he's like, we need to bury the past to save the future. Like, yeah, that's a fucking hero of the show, man. Right there. Right? Yeah. Like, it's a, it's that kind of moment. Um, I think that leaves just uh, Jennifer in 2016 ready for the voices to stop. Aw, Jennifer. <sighs> and yeah, it's, such, it's such a kick in – it's such a kick – in the teeth because we watch her walk out of that hotel. We see old Jennifer and her confidence and her self-assurance, right? But this, the Jennifer that we see at the end of this episode is the Jennifer who's been wandering around, tortured by the voices in her head, looks like she's been living on the street since she walked out of that hotel lobby. And well, and is, we uh, left her, she left the Emerson, like you said, but there was almost a an assumption that that storyline was kind of resolved when old Jennifer handed the I found my purpose note. So we're expecting, right. you know, like that's coming. And instead yeah. we see her at an even lower point. Yeah. Uh, I think she still has the like bandage on her wrest mm-hmm. that Cole tied on, right? It's just, 
I'm ready for the voices to stop. It's just, you know, it's these two episodes, they lay out the mythology of the primaries, but they're also very clear in like what a burden it is. Yeah, like the cost of being a primary is so huge. Yeah. Especially when you don't understand what it means. Yeah. She's right. been told, you know, oh, you're primary, you're special, you are time, you know, whatever she repeated back to Cole that Olivia fed her. And it's not that those things like were necessarily false. It's just not the whole picture. And so she yeah. is no closer to understanding what she's listening to than she was before. Now, it's just that whatever purpose she thought she did have has been removed. The only person that listens to her is gone. And she's just wandering around like totally, you know, yeah. In, a, in this place of, of darkness where she can't even get quiet. Right? And, this, and you know what the even sadder part of it is? She wants those voices to stop, even though for like the f- one of the first times in her life, when she was with Cole at the Emerson Hotel and they found room 607, right? It was like one of the first times that she got confirmation that maybe there's something more to those voices, mm-hmm. right? Um so it's just, yeah, it is a gut punch. It really is. I think there's just too many of them right now, though, and she doesn't know how to sort through them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, well, she doesn't it's have the context. Like, like it's it's all noise until you have enough context to understand the meaning, and she doesn't have any context. You know, right. like she doesn't have no any. straight line. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the other thing too is, you know, we talked a lot about that scene with Cole when she was saying. um, trying to find her purpose. And I think it's interesting that the note that comes to Cole, I found my purpose, is one that comes from old Jennifer. Because maybe, you know, like when you're in the middle of it, how the fuck could any of us know what our purpose is? Right, right? yeah. Maybe that's something that you only, if you ever have, you only, it only comes with sort of the hindsight of old age. Yeah. Right? Like, so... You know, it is a gut punch that we thought that that, you know, when she walked out of that hotel room, that it that it was kind of like a, a more traditional hero's journey of finding her purpose, right? Yeah. And like, but but that's also naive because that's not normally how life goes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. 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 But I do, what I do love is that situation room, the kind of punchline theme is... We need to bury the past, right, Mm -hmm. to save the future. And the next episode is the road trip with Jennifer and Cassie. And Jennifer and Cassie figure out a way to bury the hatchet. Jennifer confronting her past, both her mother and Olivia. And it's a really great – even though the end of this episode is like – Oh, like really tough emotionally. It, it is like foreshadowing that the next episode is going to be Jennifer confronting her past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. You know, another interesting thing to think about with old Jennifer handing the note, you know, of of I found my purpose. We assume, you know, to a large degree, I think that's the daughters and leading and and you know, guiding Cole and guiding freaking everybody and being the key to everything. <laughs> um, you know, no big. <laughs> She found a purpose that was way bigger than the one Olivia tried to give her. Um, But how does that play into the fact, or it doesn't play into the fact it would be gone of the reset timeline? Mm. And she remembers it, but like none of that. Well, that, so what's interesting with even for that old Jennifer saying, I found my purpose, she did. am, Am I thinking about this the right way, Beep? You are much better at keeping this straight. 
this the Jennifer who hands over that note is a Jennifer who chose not to go to Titan at the end of this season, right? Remember when she's dying, she tells Egg Jennifer, I chose not to go to Titan. I chose to run with my daughters. You can make a different choice. Right. And this old Jennifer is a pre-nosebleed. She does not know how the story ends. Correct. Right. She does not know the ultimate purpose she will serve in getting Deacon as the reinforcements to save the day. So even that old Jennifer doesn't know, like, she knows that she's important to the story, but even that old Jennifer doesn't know the extent of her purpose. Because how can any of us know that, right? Like, maybe it's a... You know, maybe it's a bullshit question. <laughs> we ask Man, you're really like worsening my midlife crisis here. <laughs> I think that her purpose uh, honey, was to make that unicorn. That's, I think yes, her purpose I agree. was to make that unicorn yes. with unbreakable legs so you wouldn't have to shoot it like a horse. There you go. <laughs> Boom. Way to bring it back around. I th- I love it. Sorry, I didn't mean to like I'm I'm 41. I'm deep in my middle. So. <laughs> I'm just like I'm inching up my mind. Four. I'm super advanced. <laughs> like the, what the fuck law school? That wasn't my purpose. <laughs> so, all right. So the one thing I just wanted to mention, I don't have I have never read HG Wells. I'm in I have not I haven't either actually. Have you beat no, I was telling you the other day, the only thing I know about H.G. Wells is when they did an, an interesting spin on that character in time travel in Warehouse 13. And I only know it from uh, Back to the Future 3, when uh, <laughs> Doc Brown and Clara Clayton fall in love over their mutual love of H.G. Wells. <laughs> so we're basically experts. So we're, yeah. we, I bet you we know as much about Jennifer or H.G. Uh, uh, Wells as Jennifer does. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I I heard about, like, War of the Worlds when it was a radio program and people thought, right, there was an actual War of the right. Worlds. So I the thought that one- was Orson Welles. I think Orson Welles d- did, did H- the broadcast, but the story was oh. written, by, written by H.G. Wells, yeah. Wells, 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 I see. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, this is well really played. Expert, the- <laughs> uh. Wells, actually, uh, I think that amazing pun is our cold open. <laughs> so, but the one thing I did want to mention. So, I mean, he gets thrown around a lot in sort of. I feel like I hear. I, I I just need to go like read it because I always hear people talking about the Island of Doctor Moreau or War of the Worlds or the Time Machine. But so the thing that I just wanted to point out with my like just internet research and admitting that we have never watched. I mean, read She Wells is the he has a work from 1895 called The Time Machine, and according to Wikipedia, um, <laughs> it, it, that book. <laughs> is basically where it's like the first work of literature where there in that book there's a tabletop machine that allows the narrator to travel through time ah and our like pop and and in that book it's exploring a like future like dying earth like not quite post-apocalyptic, but, but basically like humanity's almost been wiped away and where there used to be civilization, there's now like overgrown gardens and it's kind of like a post-civilization, current civilization earth. So it also has that in common with 
with the show and the film. Mm. But this, it's a tabletop machine that, like, that is a, allows the narrator to travel through time to, like, a time and place of his choosing. And this novel is where we get our, like, pop culture, like, a time machine um, from. Ah. So, Right. So like whether it's, you know, like a DeLorean <laughs> or Jones's machine, the whole like idea of calling it the whole idea of a machine that can allow you to travel through time through like another dimension comes from the H.G. Wells novel, The Time Machine. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay. At least according to Wikipedia. <laughs> which is I do know more about the island of Dr. Right. Moreau, which I had no idea that he wrote. Right. I hear about Island of Dr. Moreau all the time. Anyway, of course, basically the conclusion is we all need to fucking go read H.G. Wells. But <laughs> I did so. read The Island of Dr. Moreau, and my biggest takeaway from it was it's really racist. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe not that. I mean, it's like the 1890s. That feels Yeah, bad. 1890s British writer, like, I mean, you kind of just got to assume it's going to be racist, but. <laughs> <laughs> Aw, uh, Aaron, thanks so much for coming back. Always so fun. Thank you for you having on. me back. It was a delight, as always. Um, so next up, we're going to talk about bodies of water. Um, many different kinds of road trips. <laughs> Jennifer and Cassie, Cole, Ramsey, and Deacon are going to take a little bit of a different road trip. Mm. <laughs> um, and Olivia's going to come back, and Dark Amy will be joining us for that <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Dark Amy or Amy a Slayer. I, maybe she's going by Amy a Slayer right now, but she will be joining us. So, so many Twitter names. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so if you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon. See you soon.